Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. And I'm Elizabeth Stark. And And this this is Storymakers Show. Just in a quick announcement that on May 31st, 2016, in Berkeley, I'm inviting folks to attend one of my craft classes for free. To learn more, go to bookwritingworld.com backslash friends dash week backslash or shoot me an email. This week, we talk with Peg Alford Purcell, founder and curator of the successful monthly reading series, Why There Are Words, who is launching a publishing press with the same name. She's also the author of a forthcoming book of flash and hybrid prose called Show Her a Flower, a Bird, a Shadow from ELJ Publications. Her work has been published in Volt, the Journal of Compressed Arts, Rhino, among many others, and shortlisted for the Flannery O'Connor Award. As you can imagine, we had a rich and varied conversation conversation about all these literary activities and her insights into everything from shaping a collection to the landscape of publishing today. But you don't have to imagine. Just listen on and enjoy, enjoy the, the show. show. I was just so inspired by all the many literary hats you wear, and I'm hoping we can delve into into all of them. Or, <laughs> so let's start. So we're going to delve into your hats right now. Is <laughs> there right. a hat you'd like us to delve into first? <laughs> uh, no, you know, you go ahead. Uh, you, you lead and I will follow. Okay, what about what we're working on? Oh, yes. <laughs> we usually start our conversation with each of us uh, checking in about what we're working on right now. And we can start and then we'll go into you and that will lead us forward into our conversation. So, Angie, what are you working on? Mostly I am wrestling an essay for school into some... It's wrestling me into submission. I'd like to say that it was becoming submissive. (laughs) I'm getting a... um, a little bit further ahead, but it's something that I'm really struggling with, and I've really struggled with the very particular form I'm being asked to write in, so there you go. <laughs> well, I just finished an essay for a, for a, well, an editor had, had asked me to write an essay with more scene, which is so funny, because I'm always pushing my students to do more scene, and then I had done something sort of um, a manifesto-ish, so anyway, so I... <laughs> And I hugely resisted, too. I think that's just part of the process. And I thought, forget it. I can't do it. And only then did my mind come up with, or whatever, my imagination come up with some way to approach it. So I'm feeling sort of happy with that. (laughs) And (laughs) sent it off again. So, Peg, how about you? What are you working on? Uh, Let's see. Well... Uh, you know, I'm I'm shifting between two different two different manuscripts right now, and one is um, I the book that I have coming out this next year. I you know just can't leave it alone, uh-huh. and so I'm. It's a book, uh, you know, a collection of very short um, flash and hybrid pose prose pieces, and I'm, you know, back at that again. Particularly because a few more have been published, and so each time that I send something out and have it successfully published, then I feel the the need to go back in and tinker, and then, <laughs> but I'm also putting together another. Um, similar manuscript of very short pieces that, you know, I I seem to accumulate a lot of these and then it reaches a kind of point of maybe um, mass accumulation and, you know, a whole full manuscript needs to be, needs to be put together. So that's, that's what I'm doing. And are the manuscripts 
essentially collections? Um, do, yes. do you see them as, as kind of something you would see people reading from beginning to end? Yes, I do. I do more so with the, the new one that I'm putting together, which I'm tentatively calling City Like a Mother, um, because I have found that I think many of these pieces have been written over the last 18 months, and it seems that they have kinds of, um, there's more thematic um, threads mm-hmm. through these. Um, well, you know what? Actually, there are thematic threads definitely through the other, the, the mm-hmm. book that's coming out, but it's as if uh, suddenly for me in the, in the um, act of composing these, the threads were more obvious to me mm-hmm. at the time. And so it's sort of a movement in three parts. Um, so yeah, I do. I do very much imagine people reading them, um, you know, beginning to end. But that it's also fun, like any kind of collection, or or interesting, I should say. We like I like to read to just open something to wherever and start reading, and then moving around in the book, and then maybe starting over and seeing. Well, what did the author herself have in mind? You know, by the way that it's arranged. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting. You know. Um Reading your work, it's so almost impressionist in certain places. It's very poetic. Um, and as you're talking about your collection, I'm reminded actually of, of learning that Ted Hughes had reorganized Ariel. Right. And, and that, you know, what, this, what the story of a collection is, uh, is its own thing. Do you know what I mean? And so it's interesting. You want to talk a little bit about how you think about putting something like that together? Well, sure. Um, and and it's interesting because each each collection, you know, and I have another much longer story, more traditional length story collection that I've been working on. But um, it's interesting because I think each, you know, each entity is its own entity in a way. And um, when I worked on my first book, putting it together, I was really kind of arranging things to see, well, what are the sort of correspondences that came out between uh, one story, one piece, and another, and seeing um, new correspondences that I hadn't, that I hadn't imagined, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, then would create well it would have several different effects for me and one was to make me want to write something else new which I think is a you know beautiful benefit from that and I (laughs) wrote a lot of new material just arranging uh, arranging the book Mm -hmm. but you know sometimes you want um, or I want a story to amplify another another story another um you know, another thematic concern or maybe um, echo echo something. And then in another case, I want it to juxtapose mm-hmm. particular, uh, you know, emotion 
let's say. Um, so there are so many different ways to to work with it. And it's almost as if you could, well, I guess you could arrange something, you know, endlessly. And I mean, it's like a rabbit hole you could go down. Really? <laughs> so, you know. Yes, we could go down that rabbit hole, in fact. <laughs> now, you've mentioned theme and emotion. How about, I mean, are, are there any sort of like character connections uh, or setting, anything, or any of those sort of more uh, overt? Uh, Absolutely. Actually, the first thing that I, the very first thing that I work with are, I like to look at what are the objects in each story, because I find that um, these objects, you know, what what is there? A canoe, let's say a canoe, um, you know, an urn, what, whatever these are, carry they should carry I hope for them to carry quite a bit of emotional weight uh, I tone but also in very short work they for me um, do a great deal of characterization mm-hmm. work on characterization as well you know you're, I'm not going to have a certain character who is going to have for example you know a quiver of arrows that it, it this would not suit this character at all um but it's interesting when i so i start to look at like what are all these objects and i list them out and hmm. that's where i find very interesting correspondences and i begin to see other depths to character because in reality character is probably what we're most attuned to as readers um you know as human beings that's mm-hmm. what we're most attuned to and i think everything in a way follows from that mm-hmm. you know emotion tone thematic concerns uh, all of the rest is setting i think settings a, a little more uh particular in the way because not only does it um you know develop character so so explicitly and and so um, deeply, but it also, uh, you know, becomes its own character in many ways. So, and, and I think you know we're all that's not a new idea, but it's it it's an important one. So, um, I really you know it's really looking at those objects because I think um, that helps me to clue into something that is very hard, uh, I think, for any of us as writers to really, you know, move into a, um, not just that objective, that objective sense, but an ability to see beyond our own creative consciousness, because, you know, we're creating in, in a certain kind of consciousness, and, and I think that we need it, and I think we almost have to stay with it maybe even almost forever. I, I think about when I heard um, Michael Andaje once talking about uh, the paperback had just of his latest book had just come out and he was talking about people asking him about, you know, what this all meant, you know, the meaning of his books and, you know, uh, what was he writing? What were they about? You know, and he was saying, I don't even think that anyone should be asked such a question before the paperback version comes out, you know, and then (laughs) he's like, and even then, uh, you know, in many ways you can't really ever 
completely know. And I think he was alluding to something that I feel strongly about is, is like once you completely take all the mystery away for yourself as a writer, maybe maybe it's just all over with then. You know, I think that I, you know, count on that idea of not ever fully understanding certain significances to to what is there that others may see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, you know, it was just, it's just interesting because um, one of the things I've also been struggling with is, you know, this, this idea about meaning in screenplays and how that manifests itself. Um, and it's just interesting to think about what it means. I, people, readers always bring things we cannot anticipate into their interaction, right? There's that whole theory about the experience of reading sort of happens somewhere between, you know, the author and the reader. There's this third body that happens. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you, you have to balance a sense of intentionality. So it's interesting if you're saying, you know, we can't, we, we have to have this sense of mystery, but at the same time, we are shaping something. Yes, I know. It's such a fine line to walk, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think it's only by, for me, absolutely accepting that in the end, I won't ever reach that place of um, objectivity that first of all makes me on a practical in a you know pragmatic sense able to release any work out in the world to be read mm-hmm. but second of all makes me able to keep writing more and because it you know if it feeds the whole idea in the first place of why bother you know why bother to write in the first place hmm. if if we're just able to know ourselves so completely then what is the drive you know mm-hmm. and i think um it is you know once we release that work out into the world and for other readers you know in every sense of the word it really becomes theirs so, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I have some uh, you know a real a couple of really brilliant students who um, really struggle with letting go of the work, and I love this idea of kind of letting there be a mystery, letting there be an, a not controlled aspect of it. And you know, Angie mentioned the the kind of the experience between the writer and the reader, where the book maybe comes alive. And you are also a curator of the reading series, Why There Are Words, and now that's evolving into a, a publishing imprint, a publishing company as well. Can you talk from those positions about um, kind of what you look for in work and how much uh, how much you know, un- mystery or res- uh, irresolution you're, you, you, you know, look for or tolerate? How, how does it, how does it come from the other side? If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it does. Well, of course, once I'm, you know, reading someone else's work, you know, I'm in, I'm in that other seat, just what we're talking about. And I'm like any, any reader, um, who is, uh, you know, I'm projecting, we're all projecting ourselves and our own consciousness on this work. So that that's just very true. But 
Uh, let me think about some sort of. Oh, hmm. I think one thing that's very important to me when I have people read at the series, I do look for that ability for the you know the universal to come through that can only come through the very particular um, consciousness or writing of that author. So, um, you know, because really it's all the same stories in a sense. I think that's, you know, why we have that whole, um, there's the whole, we're all one, you know, quote unquote, we're all one, right? We all, but it's, you know, and it's the it's kind of the same same stories over and over. But what what is important about those stories are you know that the particularization of them, so that there's something uh, new or different or enlightening or enriching. You know, for for me, for anybody who is going to hear this or going to read it. Um, so that's, I think, kind of the essence of what, of what matters to me in sharing the, uh, the authors who read it, the series. It's, that's, that's kind of the first, that's the essence. You know, for me also, I think with the press, one of the main things that is is super important to me and is sort of the basis for the whole thing is that so many voices are being overlooked or ignored by mainstream corporate publishing and those are those are the voices that's what I'm interested in um, in putting out there so yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a kind of an amazing time to dive into publishing and and also a, maybe a crazy time. I mean, how do you see the publishing landscape at right now? It's so interesting because I just got done reading. I don't know, maybe a month or so, month or so ago. Um, Gray Wolf, uh, the Gray Wolf editor, whose name at this very moment is escaping me, wrote such a. He was interviewed, and I, I think I saw this via the Literary Hub, mm-hmm. and he talked about. In fact, you know, as you know, uh, Gray Wolf is a um, nonprofit indie publisher, and you know now they're they're becoming larger mm-hmm. naturally because, uh, you know, they're they've been publishing so many. Fabulous books, amazing, and yeah. prizes, yes. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, in reality, that independent publishing is the most stable mm. and viable publishing that exists. And you know, I think that that's it's kind of related in some ways to this to this idea that's also been written about and talked about, and that is that. You know, with mainstream publishing, the the real issue is they have uh, profit and um, loss sheets, and this drives everything. It drives everything from you know who is who is getting published. Uh, the the big problems really there are that agents can only afford to 
uh, take to publishers work that is considered safe. It's the same thing. Mm. It's expected to um, do well. You know, there is no real place there for um, literary outliers. It's all Mm. about they have to supply the publishing industry with what it needs to keep going. But that doesn't vary very much from what has been previously successful. So, you know, because you've got these shareholders, they're the they're the. It sounds very similar to uh, critiques or descriptions of the Hollywood studio system that right. they have gotten into this place where, um, you know, I don't know that publishing has gotten there, but, um, you know, so much of a, an individual film, it's like that first weekend makes or breaks it. Absolutely. And, and I think publishing is there. I think It is there. It's absolutely there. It's, you know, it. Uh, I, I think there are six is it six uh, media uh, uh, publishing conglomerates published all the you know mainstream publishing books mm-hmm. that's that's ridiculous now on the other hand and and this is all um, you know it's all calibrated on agents um, you know what will sell what will sell and it's always you know because it's all profits and losses and you know there are stakeholders these things have to sell and mm-hmm. the only thing that can sell is what has been selling and, and although they don't really know right i mean that's the thing is it is it is at bottom in art and so they don't really know from book to book which one is going to sell and so they're making these guesses based on numbers and, and what has been sold before, right? Yeah. And so the small presses, which you know, I'm very proud to, you know, to enter this kind of tradition, is that they're not asking, well, how many copies will sell, but they're asking, they're saying, well, how good is this? What is its value as literature? What does it contribute to, you know, to our record of yeah. human whatever? You know, so mm-hmm. quality is really the only criterion, and it's interesting that so many of the you know, like the Pulitzer Prize prizes, and uh, you know the big prizes are going to small presses. Small presses they really are. Well, then, given given who many of our our uh, listeners are, it sounds like, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is agents' income is somewhat predicated on their ability to sell to these big houses. So we're backing up that fear of the different all the way into agents. Um, and so we have a number of people who are looking. If you are a new writer coming up and, you know, want to see your work out there, um, what would, you know, is there a shift in strategy they should be looking at? Should they directly address these smaller publishers themselves? Should they still try to look, try and look for an agent? Well, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with doing both. I think, uh, now, I'm in a somewhat, well, I wouldn't say unique, but I'm in a lucky position where um, I'm part of a, um, my MFA program has a very strong uh, kind of alumni association that that I'm involved with. Or, or maybe I should just say that I, you know, know quite a few uh, alums from the program and have been in the unique position of reading their gorgeous, gorgeous manuscripts. And it's been disheartening for me to watch over the years those that 
do not find agents, but very quickly were taken on by um, independent presses. And in both cases, I'm thinking of, I'm saying both, but I'm only thinking of in this past year, two uh, different friends manuscripts who both won major prizes with these these houses. And mm. I think it, all of this informs me that you can spend a lot of time, you know, trying to get an agent. And in the case of these two people, they both did, but smartly didn't spend that much time and immediately went to, um, to these, these presses. And so I guess what I'm thinking of, you know, and I have the situation of I have another uh, longer uh, novel told in stories and I've been doing the agent, um, you know, I started the, that process of going through, you know, with agents and, you know, it's, it can be very discouraging to, because I do feel that I'm hearing, you know, the truth, which is the book is great. I don't think I can sell it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, we've heard that one. <laughs> yes, of course, you know, right? So I say, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying your luck with that. And, you know, I'm certainly not against any of that in any way, shape or form. But I would say, you know, maybe don't spend, you know, years on that and look to some other other good presses but you know I, I do want to distinguish from the, you know the idea that you really do have to distinguish you know of course it really is important to make sure as you know I mean I'm sure you know I'm just saying for the sake of anybody who's listening to this you know I can't emphasize enough how important it is to make sure that your book is really Ready. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, that's just first. That's sort of a given, I think. But, but, you know. but let's talk about that because you also work as an editor. I mean, you work, you're now going to be a publishing editor, but you also work with people on their manuscripts editing. Can you talk about some of your kind of top advice for making sure your manuscript is strong? Yes, I guess I can. It's interesting because I'm just finishing uh, a novel, editing a novel for someone right now. And, uh, it's so interesting how I think that we always, meaning we writers, always tend to think that a book is finished before it is. Yes. <laughs> we, we hope, right? We, we do. We do. And I think that, um, and of course, there is this thing that you can just, you know, edit something to death you, and rewrite it to death. You don't want that. Um, but there is, um, there's an area somewhere sweetly in the middle of that and um, often often we just have reached a saturation point and uh, writers reach a saturation point with their manuscripts where they call it done but in fact it's just they really do need to get it in the hands of somebody else Um and be prepared, I think, to go back at it for another one or two passes. But I think there's something where we all reach that 
point that I can only think of is, is kind of a, a certain saturation point. And I think we've done everything that we can think to do craft-wise. Um, we've had several good readers, you know, read it and get get advice from them and make, you know, make several corrections and several revisions and move through it again and again. But... And so then we're just ready to say, okay, it's got to be ready. I just can't think what else to do with this now. It's, it's got to be ready. And I think that that's actually a kind of a saturation point that we need someone else who's never seen it, who's, who's recommended as a really great editor uh, and let them look at it and then be willing to really put it away for a little bit and that's the hard part I think I think it's very hard if particularly if you've spent you know some if you've spent 10 years on something um, that's really hard to accept mm-hmm. but if it's really going to be what it needs to be I think there's always room for so much more patience and so maybe that's my taught advice is just that you know there's always room for more patience no not patience (laughs) yeah that makes sense unfortunately (laughs) I know believe me I know yeah and and actually can you talk a little bit about if if you were advising somebody who was going to start a reading series not that not that we are but say somebody listening um what would you, you know, you have so much experience with this. Like in Sonoma County. Like if someone was in the Sonoma County and they were going to start a and reading. And she's in Sonoma County. <laughs> oh, are you? She moved, well, I am now, yes. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to the wine country. Thank you. In I, fact, might, might you start a series in Sonoma County? <laughs> I actually do plan, I do have plans when my, um, you know, things with my family calm down just a little bit. I do have plans to... Um, expand why there are words here. Um, it would probably, it would definitely not be monthly. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. We can never have enough reading series, you know, and opportunities for people to read. That I just truly believe that. And so, uh, let's see. Yeah, I have you know, plenty of advice. I think the first thing that anybody needs to know who's going to do this is it's going to take over your life in ways that you didn't think it would. And you really have to be prepared to, to, um, put a lot of time in that you might not have thought you would. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of crazy because, you know, even I've been doing this now for six years and I do have, you know, two people who help with social media. Um, But it's always things that you never can anticipate. You think that you've seen it all and you could could know everything, but it's always these weird (laughs) things that come up and they happen all behind the scenes. Mm. All with, it's all with uh, publicists who are booking readings for their um, clients. It's with, you know, publishers who are booking readings. It's with the um, authors themselves. And it's always surprising these little weird things that come up that then end up taking on 
you know, they take a lot of time. And it's like, and it always happens just when you think, I don't have any time for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, um, so it's that, I think, you know, and I know that's probably not very helpful, but I think that is just, you really do have to know that stuff will come up and you will have to deal with it. And it's not something that can just be put off. Um, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like, okay, if something comes up with my revision, I can I can put it off, you know, mm-hmm. f- till tomorrow or something. But a lot of these things are very time sensitive and uh, they can be personality sensitive. And- well, yes, I was just going to say artists are sensitive people. I imagine there's a bit of yes. healings that come with this whole process. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> How about, yes. can you talk a little bit about publicists? Um, since you work with them from the from the other side, you know, is it something you would recommend writers get? And what makes a good publicist? Well, that is interesting. And I feel like I don't know, uh, you know, a, a lot about it. I know what interactions I've had with various publicists who, you know, found found the series like very early on and um, approached me with, you know, um, a slate of clients or or a client or one or two or whatever. And um, I don't know. I think the way I view it is that it's just like anyone else who is working in this in this in this field it's very individual i just feel i don't have enough personal experience with i haven't had a publicist and i know that i won't be using a publicist for my book i feel that i feel like i can personally do you know through my networking and you know across the country and so on i feel like i can do as good as of a job as a publicist, particularly since I know what goes into this, you know, from from book reviews to lining up readings to et cetera, et cetera. So for an author who's going to hire one, you know, on their own, that they're not getting one with, a, you know, one of these, you know, uh, larger uh, mainstream publishing houses, I guess it's about... Sadly, you ha- would have to have enough information or knowledge about it to start out with <laughs> to even understand whether or not they're really doing what, doing the best that they could do mm-hmm. for your book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I don't feel like I can be very helpful on that. <laughs> on that. No, I think that's a great insight. I mean, one of the things, looking at like small businesses and stuff, I very often see people taking on things. I'm going to learn how to make my own website or do my own website or you know whatever. And, you know, if you don't know anything about doing a website, you don't know if the person is actually doing a terrible job and setting you up poorly. Right. It may look okay, and you might be happy with the way it looks, but it may be setting you up for big problems down the road. So there definitely is that piece of what is the uh, employer's responsibility, even when that employer is an author and a publicist. Right. You don't, you know, I mean, if you don't know what you don't know, so I guess in that case, the only thing that I can, you know, think of to, you know, in order to, you know, offer any kind of advice is that, um, and it's a little hard because, you know, many writers are completely intro- introverts and they don't, you know, completely introverted and they're not, 
maybe tapped in, but it, I think it would be to try to, you know, tap into your just I don't I hate the word networks but just you know if you're part of if, you, if you're part of an alumni association if you're part of um, a group on Facebook if you, whatever your possibilities are to really try to check out with other people um, to find out what what how what what do they know, you know, what have their experiences been with various publicists? Mm -hmm. What do they, you know, what did they wish they knew Mm -hmm. uh, going into it? Because I think that's always going to be, that's always going to be the case. And, you know, on the other hand, I will say too, that I, I had a friend who is so, you know, wrote a beautiful book and she's so completely introverted and hates social media and just like will barely do the minimum on it. And she's just, it's, she's just such a wonderful, intelligent, vibrant person. And she just cannot stand any of this. And so she said, she did hire a publicist, you know, she, you know, did some checking out of things and then she just was like, okay. You know, because I just can't bear to do. <laughs> yeah. No, I know I should, but I can't bear to do this. So I'm going to get somebody to do this for me. And I think that made perfect sense for her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, it doesn't, to me, I'm not looking for this to be plastered all over. And I'm not, you know, I just want somebody else to handle these things for me so that I can do my best to enjoy, you know, getting it out there in the world and feeling like I did the best for the publisher and the best for the book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I so there's that part of it too. You Before know, it, we go to our wrap-up question, I want to return to your writing because I've been teaching compression this week in my writing classes and your pieces are flash fiction, at least the ones that you know we could read online, right? And very tight. I mean, like a page in length or sometimes less. And, um, and imagistic, as Angie mentioned, um, they almost have like sometimes a sort of, well, a poetic logic running through them as well as a story, a moment. Can you talk about creating that kind of compression? Do you do that through editing? Do you do that through, I mean, is that a natural kind of rhythm? How do you know when a piece is has ended. Oh, thank you for that question. I, you know, I've just speak. You know, I've just more and more um, fallen in love with very compressed work, and it's it's interesting because some of my stories are like Alice Monroe length, like forty pages. Mm. So, and so to write this tight and, um, you know with such compression and, you know, so condensed. Uh, I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of, I started out as a poet oh. many, many years ago. And for reasons I won't go into right now, I felt that I needed to leave poetry behind and learn to write fiction and learn, you know, to, to write long. And so I did that. And so I think in some ways, maybe it's returning it's a return to something that is that maybe like suits my temperament more or something internal more mm-hmm. although I still like love to write you know expansively and do 
I think it is something that is, there's a, more of a visceral or felt point for me in, in very um, short work. You know, I often, sometimes it's 200, under 250 words. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that it, it is something that is just kind of, um, uh, you know, felt almost in the body. And I can sometimes very much sense when a thing is, when I'm in, when I'm in the middle of writing it, I can sense, ah, here is the, here, here, here's the ending. It's coming. Here it is. (laughs) So it's, um, it's a very different experience. And I think even that is changing a little bit for me. Um, but I like it very much, very, very much because though I will work on a piece once, once something's done, I, I might work on that like 20 to 30 more times because there's, I don't, there's something I, I'm very language driven and I am always very much trying to find out what is you know what is deeply there that I don't that I don't know is there and how can I you know bring that out uh, bring bring that up more you know shine the light on it more so to speak and so I don't know and it, maybe it's just a very obsessive kind of thing to do <laughs> well, we're, we're back to the mystery which I, yeah. which I love so our last que- uh, segment is our steal this segment and it's based on T.S. Eliot's idea that amateur poets borrow professional poets steal yeah. uh, and so we just ask ourselves all three of us um, if it was something you've come across lately that you would like to steal and make your own whether in your reading or in, in the world um something you loved enough to to want to take uh peg do you want to start that's that is just a beautiful um beautiful idea and just out yeah i mean i could think about this forever um two things that i'm really enjoying right now um danielle dutton's margaret the first which was just published um by uh, Catapult Press, and she she runs the Dorothy Project, a beautiful um, independent press. This book has really captured my imagination, and it's interesting because really, it's actually historical fiction. And in my life, I've never had any interest mm. in writing historical fiction ever. And it's just, it's amazing to me that it's almost as if, um, you know, my eyes have been opened after all this time. You know, I'm not, I'm not 20, I'm not 30. (laughs) And now my eyes, this book has just opened my eyes Mm. to that possibility. And so I think that's completely amazing. And maybe I'll just leave it at the one because... Mm. I, I don't even want to um, dilute the strength of, of that book and the mm. effect that it's had on me. And so who knows, you know, maybe I will do something of that nature. It's just certainly, you know, it's animated my 
um, you know, I'm, I'm excited uh, about it. So that's great. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Angie, how about you? Well, I have the privilege every now and then of reading some of Elizabeth's work. And actually this week, I want to steal your juxtaposition of ideas. I, I won't go too deeply into what you did and how you did, but I think you did a, an excellent job. You mean with the essay? With the essay. And it put that's me in... That's intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I have to wait for the essay. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, I, I remember back in high school, I had a creative writing teacher who had an exercise that was sort of like, you know, write a series of nouns on one side of the paper and then write a different thing. And I can't remember if it was verbs or nouns, but there was a way that you kind of made these artificial out of nothing juxtapositions that became very interesting. Um, it might've been an abstraction and a concrete noun or something like that, but, um, and I just, I was really intrigued with what you did. And um, so it's kind of put me on thinking about juxtaposition. Well, I can actually amplify on that because I, I stole two things. So, <laughs> you know, I like I said, I'm always pushing my students who write nonfiction to open up and create scene and so forth. And, um, and so then an editor said, we're interested in this, but we want you to open up, create scene. So I looked at um, an essay in The Sun this month on faith mm-hmm. and um, and I can I'll put a link in the show notes and then an essay on um, in the rumpus that I that is sort of about Judaism and identity again I'll put a, I'll put a link in and um, and both of them kind of similarly were organized where there were these juxtaposed scenes eventually they did kind of build to tell a story but they pulled from different moments and so there were some really braided braided stories and I felt like it kind of taught me or retaught me how to write an essay that is really I mean how to write narrative creative nonfiction that's really narrative narratively driven and that's and that's what I did so you can oh, I okay stole it well from never them. mind then you can steal it from me I mean that's how this whole thing works right <laughs> it's you know like a game of telephone hey can you tell our listeners how to find you Oh, yes. Thank you so much. That's that's very kind of you. Well, first, uh, let me say this. The um, WTAW Press, the uh, publishing company, will be opening submissions June 15th. Mm-hmm. So and th- this will be this first year prose submissions. We're not doing any poetry. And of course, prose covers novels, novellas, story collections, essay collections, memoir, not, you know, nonfiction books, etc. And that website where you can find all of that information is WTAWpress.org. Um, and, uh, you know, so I have my own website, you know, uh, under my name. And I don't do a very good job of keeping it up, unfortunately. But Although can- I love your resource links. I think they're fantastic. So oh, um, I will put a link in the show notes to your to your website because I think oh, it's thank great. you because I mean I really need to completely update that um, you know of course the reading series has its own um, website um, and you know I probably don't need to spell that out for you you can put that in the um, show notes <laughs> program notes also but those are kind of my main things I am on Facebook uh I don't have my own Twitter account, but, you know, our reading series does. And as of today, both the press and 
the press has both a um, Facebook page and a Twitter account. Nice. So, so uh, yeah, so you can find those and um, to go visit them, like them, become part of the conversation. Absolutely, and if you've got manuscripts, you know, polish them up, you know, send them in June. Um, we will be reading blindly. I feel like that's the only way at this point to uh, make sure that I'm going, you know, I want to publish the best work possible and I don't want to know whose work it is mm-hmm. until I'm done selecting the manuscript so I think it's the only way to do it Um, but I you know I want those voices that need to be heard so um, you know just please let people know that and you know I very much look forward to uh, reading lots of amazing work I know it's out there Mm, yes Yes, it really is well thank you so much for your time it was wonderful to talk to you about all your fabulous ventures thank you Mm. thank you both so much I'll do it anytime again it was a lot of fun so thank you great Great. thank you love it (laughs) take care take care bye 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 bye